Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cristiano Ronaldo has left Manchester United with immediate effect, the club has confirmed in a statement, while the Glazer family are reportedly considering selling off the club. In an interview on Talk TV with Piers Morgan last week, Ronaldo said he felt betrayed by the club and claimed that members of the United hierarchy were trying to force him out of Old Trafford. Yes, not only the coach, but the other two or three guys there around the club. At the uh, senior executive level? Yes that I felt betrayed. And you uh, think they're trying to get rid of you? Honestly, I should not say that, I don't know, but listen, I, I don't care, I'm always, people should listen the truth. Yes, I feel betrayed and I felt that some people that don't want me here, not only this year, but last year too. Joining me now from Qatar, currently on a bus with the very latest, is Chief Football Writer at The Independent, Miguel Delaney. Miguel, you're coming from France, Australia. You're uh, heading back to the Press Village. Uh, thanks for joining us on the shuttle bus tonight. But take us through this big news that's, uh, that's emerged uh, from Manchester United. They're saying goodbye to their one star striker. Uh, not surprising, really. Uh, after that interview with Piers Morgan, that the writing really was on the wall there. Was he dumped or did he quit? Uh, I think it was more a case he was dumped, but he wanted out uh, because he basically put the club in an untenable position with that interview, as you, as you say, with Piers, with Piers Morgan, which, I mean, at the time, everyone felt it was basically the main strategy behind it was basically to force United into the situation. But it's all the more curious, of course, given that Ronaldo wanted out in the summer. United actually would have would have let him go for the right deal, but none was forthcoming. And that's kind of maybe the biggest curiosity in all this, that where is he going to go next? Uh, because I think the source of a lot of this story is basically a player that's in denial about where he is in his career. His ego is monstrous. But at the moment, there aren't too many clubs that want him, not least United themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. He says he's seeking new challenges and that the time was right for him. Um, so interesting to see what happens next uh, in terms of the timing around all this. Of course, he's with the Portugal team uh, about to embark this week on their first match. But staying with Manchester United, the Glazer family, after 17 years of ownership, are now considering selling the club. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's been a slow news day <laughs> going on, especially at Manchester United. But, I mean, the latest night was, uh, there was a story broken by Sky News around three hours ago that the club were going to drop a statement announcing they're considering a sale. That finally came about an hour ago. Now, this is a story that's actually been swirling since about August, where, I mean, I, I wrote a piece myself around them, which is basically saying that the belief, the widespread belief among kind of investment circles in football was that the Glaze would be open to a sale. Even around August, there were three buyers interested. I'm, still, I'm told it's still the case. And really, I suppose, 
what's new about tonight in that sense, because I think the club has actually been for sale for some time, is that they went so public, which is surprising given the Glazers usually are quite discreet. Uh, but I I don't think that's completely unconnected from the fact that Liverpool confirmed that they were up for sale uh, last week. I, it feels like it's coming to a point for both where, I mean, I suppose for a start, the, the Glazers are now certainly in competition with Liverpool's owners in terms of the next, in the next buyers. But also there's maybe that feeling that it's time for a change. The European Super League project stalled. We're, we're facing into a, probably a widespread economic uh, global downturn. The Glazers themselves are particularly vulnerable in terms of interest rate hikes. And the time is right. But, and Manchester United remain. I mean, despite, I think the Glazers won, from what I've been told, six billion for an outright sale. But they won't be short of buyers, especially after that Chelsea purchase back in, in May, which I think everyone considers as a bit of a game-changer for the industry because no-one expected Chelsea to be sold for that high a price. And, and it certainly did. So interesting to see where that goes um, from here. Uh, you are in Qatar at the moment. You were at um, the match tonight, France-Australia, but the big one, the major upset was earlier today. Another match you were also at, Saudi Arabia, beating Argentina. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that reaction yeah. there. There must be just shock only a couple of days into the World Cup and this major upset. So, uh, yeah, I did a double today, which I actually wouldn't recommend because Qatar is not quite as convenient as they sold it. Well, and it's, it was so intense, that game today, an absolutely remarkable game, uh, all the more so because of the political context, given it's only a few years since Qatar felt they were going to be invaded by Saudi Arabia. Uh, so this was a, a game with, it's been such a controversial World Cup, so politicised, this only deepens it. Um, but I mean, for all the criticism of the Saudi state, when you go to events like this, and it was sort of similar with Russia as well. I mean, obviously these are states that warrant huge criticism. What you kind of realise going to games like this is that the football culture and obviously the people are separate from the state and that was something that kind of came across in today's game which basically was an underdog story which feels remarkable to say about a country as wealthy as Saudi Arabia in that sense but given that Argentina had been on a 36 game unbeaten run given it was Leo Messi they'd been talked up as really second favourites of the tournament but really they were outfought by uh, by Saudi Arabia physically actually couldn't keep up with them yeah. on the day and it's been yeah one of the biggest World Cup shocks of all time. There you go. OK, Miguel, thank you for bringing us up to date on that and for joining us tonight uh, from a moving bus. We appreciate it. Uh, Miguel Delaney joining us from Qatar tonight. Now, moving on to other news here at home and the Irish rental market has seen record levels of rent inflation in the last 12 months as there continues to be an extreme shortage of properties available to rent. According to the latest DAF.ie report, the news comes as teachers' unions have warned that the housing crisis is posing a serious risk to the education system. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined by Group Head of News at the Irish Independent, Kevin Doyle, Fianna Fáil Senator Mary Fitzpatrick, Social Democrat TD Keane O'Callaghan and Kieran Christie from the ASTI. And via Skype tonight, we're joined by teacher Podrick Wilson-McCarthy. And we'll come to you soon, Podrick. Um, first off, though, Kieran Christie, because you're among the unions that have come together warning about this severe teaching shortage and the risk that it's posing our education system because of the housing crisis. Tell us about the pressure that your members are seeing in staffing schools. Well, um, in many schools, particularly in the urban areas, uh, advertisements have been put forward for posts that haven't attracted a single application. 
that's the reality that many boards of management and, and principals and schools are facing. And I was at a public meeting last week uh, here in Dublin, uh, where, which was organised by parents mm -hmm. and well attended because uh, they have had to narrow the curriculum. Uh, they have no metalwork teacher, they have no woodwork teacher, and therefore they can't offer those subjects in, the, in design and technical graphics. So Students children, that are very important. Children are to, genuinely missing out. There yes. are classes that are just not going ahead yes, this that's, school that, year. That's, that's happening and going to be happening more and more uh, in, 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 in the, the coming period of time. And really what we've got is two crises here which are feeding of one another. We have a teacher shortage crisis which emerged from a lack of planning over certainly over the last decade uh, in terms of the demographics to ensure that the teachers would properly would be trained and available, particularly in certain subject areas. For instance, you can't get a Gaelga teacher for love or money uh, in, in many uh, counties right mm -hmm. up and down the country. Uh, and that was poor planning. And on top of that, then you've got the housing crisis. And uh, therefore, uh, you know, if, if a teacher has an option to accept a post uh, in, in a place mm -hmm. where they're going to be paying exorbitant rents, uh, or an option of some place which will be somewhat more easy to make a, a decent living and, and find proper accommodation, the choice is pretty obvious. Yeah. Are you aware of teachers who are homeless? I'm not aware of homeless teachers, but I'm aware here in Dublin and in many other urban areas where uh, uh, couples, for instance, share their, their living accommodation with others uh, and four, five, six, seven in, in houses that should be accommodating much less people. Uh, that, so that in order to keep the, the rent room. down and to be afforded to pay the rent, yes. Mm. Um, I want to bring uh, Paulrick in here because uh, Paulrick is a teacher in Dublin. Paulrick, if you could tell us about your situation, how does your take-home pay compare with the average monthly rent? Because daft.ie have come out today and said the average monthly rent now for a residential property across the country is €1,688. Uh, that's a 4.3% increase on the previous quarter. But nationally, we're seeing rent rises of 14%. Um, so where does that stand in context to your take-home pay as a teacher? Well, Claire, like in terms of my own personal situation, um, I'm working in, in like just north Dublin city. Um, and the average rent in Dublin is the highest in the entire country. And what I saw today was that basically my take-home pay at the end of the month basically matches what the what the average the, the average monthly rent would be in Dublin at the moment. So where does that leave you? I mean, what's what's your situation? It, look, it's it's impossible. I mean, I selected teaching first of all because I always wanted to be a teacher. But I mean, you you look at teaching like you know you see it as a stable job. I mean, I'm seven years into my career now, and uh, I'm almost thirty. And at this point in my career, I, I expected some form of stability and security. Um, what I've seen and what a lot of my friends who are teaching and my colleagues are seeing is that it's it's getting worse um, and there is, there is no st stability. You know, I, um, I find myself, you know, having to dip into savings for basics, uh, shopping, fuel, bills. And, and as a result, I find, you know, the prospect of ever being a homeowner or being able to afford a deposit to even be considered for a mortgage um, completely unattainable. It sounds to me... Um what you're saying is you're really in a hopeless situation here that despite holding down a full-time job, and I think everyone agrees a really, really important job in education, you're not in a position to even save your future right now. That's, that's, exactly, that's, that's exactly what it, what, what it feels like. Um, 
and you feel like you're not in a hopeless position as well. And it's very disheartening because, you know, you know, it's, you know, you hear all these people saying, you know, well, you've got all this time off and you've got, you know, extra time, get a second job. But that's not what we went into the profession for in the first place. It was for, you know, to educate and, and um, you know, and, and for, for our love of that and to not feel, look, rewar- not rewarded, but even appreciated, you know, in terms of being able to, you know, just live in our own country comfortably is is very disappointing. OK, um, uh, thank you for that, Pork. At this point, I'd like to bring Mary Fitzpatrick in. Mary, when you hear that, coupled with the rent rises we're seeing, it's all going awfully wrong, really, isn't it, for the housing for all strategy? Because you're not seeing improvement in the lives of people, the people who are you know, working these jobs, they're, they're, they're frontline, they are key workers in our country. And yet we're, we're seeing situations now that we have multiple teachers uh, to a room in some instances and many of them not being able to take up in jobs because they have nowhere to live. Yeah, look, thank Porig for, for sharing and it's not, he shouldn't have to do that. Um, that's the first thing I'd like to say. Second is there's 20 billion euros being um, invested in Housing for All to massively increase housing supply. Um, 300,000 homes will be delivered. But in terms of real people's lives, like where it is delivering already is the 13, over 13,500 pe- people who exited homelessness in the last year. From We've got government. record homeless figures. Absolutely, but I, I'm, I'm not, I'm just, I'm giving you the facts here, Claire. More than 13,500 exited homeless. More than 27,000 new homes have been built in the last year. More than 44,000 planning applications have been made. These are planning applications for real homes. We're coming out of a decade of undersupply. The reason we've invested 20 billion, we've committed 20 billion, is because we recognise there has to be a massive increase Sorry. in the what housing is it, supply. What is it that you want to say to teachers like Porrick? And it's not just teachers. We're talking yeah. workers across the board, Absolutely. actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're looking at healthcare, mm. you're looking at retail, you're looking at hospitality. Yeah. It's a very um, competitive, it's, an, it's a really competitive... Uh, employment market at the moment. And you're right, it's guards, it's youth workers, it's teachers. It's not, a, I, mean, I mean, it's not a competitive employment market. What we're really seeing is that when there are jobs there and jobs that need to be taken up, they can't be taken up. School children are missing out because people don't have anywhere to live. Yeah. That's why we are supporting people like Pork. That's why their pay increases at 6.5%. That's why he will get €1,000 back in a tax refund on the rent that he pays. That's why he can... He talked about saving for a deposit. He can get €30,000 back of his own taxes to put towards a deposit in the help to buy. That's, that's, re, that's really helping people like okay. Pork escape wanna, the trap that get, he's can in. Pork, can I get your reaction to that briefly on... On, on the supports and the aids that Mary has talked about there, whether they are something that you're looking at, whether you feel that they will help you. I mean, look, there are there are things that are being put in place and I can't deny those. I mean, we recently um, were, were given that pay rise, but also what we're seeing is the cost of inflation, it, or the, the rate of inflation is growing exponentially. And I don't know if they're going to to meet the demands. And I, I just want to say as well, Claire, just touching off what you said about other workers, it's not just us. Like we see the healthcare system is a shambles in this country at the moment. And it's not because of the healthcare workers, because that's some of the best in the whole country or in the whole world. And it's not a result of them at all. It's the conditions that they're working under and it's the factors that, that they're being they're they're being they're being forced out of this country. And what we're going to see is 
our education system is going to follow that path and we're going to have an education system, which we are very proud of. And that's because of the people on the ground that okay. are working very hard in our schools. And they're like our education system is going to follow the same as the healthcare system. And we're going to be it's going to be something that we're going to be ashamed of. OK, um, Keno Callahan, to bring you in at this point, um, what do you make of uh, we do keep hearing those figures and the, those housing targets will be met this year. And, you know, change doesn't happen overnight and all of those things that the government keep telling us as they defend their housing policy? I don't think it's, it's credible. The unwritten contract in Ireland was always, if you worked hard, if you got yourself a decent job, then you'd be able to save up, buy a home, get the stability from that. And that's been really ripped away from an entire generation. And that is having huge impacts in terms of education or healthcare services. But the, I mean, the government's figures on this, and they list off all these figures, the reality is that homelessness has never been so high in Ireland. Rents have never been so high. Uh, the price of houses has never been so high. So in every metric that matters, things are actually worse than they ever have been. And they're worse than since this government uh, came into office. If you take, for example, in the first year of this government being in office, the number of 25 to 34-year-olds still living in their parents' home uh, grew to well over 40%. was the sharpest increase uh, in those figures anywhere in Europe. So if you compare us to how we're doing in you know, other European countries, things are getting worse. We had Tonish there very recently saying, oh, if people emigrate from Ireland, young people, they'd be paying higher rents uh, in other cities. The, the highest rents in any European Union capital city uh, is, is in Dublin. We're ahead of every other uh, capital city in the European Union, Paris, Madrid, Rome, the lot. Mm. Um, really on this, uh, Kevin, that really riled people up, didn't they, what the Tonish had to say about you know, the fact that uh, essentially the grass isn't always greener. If you go abroad, you're going to be paying those high rents. And then a lot of people came back and said, look where I'm living and look what I have. I'm not in Ireland and I have a much better quality of life and I have an affordable home. Yeah, it's always a very touchy subject when you talk about emigration in that way. Michael Noonan got in huge trouble before years ago when he was suggesting that people emigrating were heading off for, for sunnier chimes and to travel and enjoy themselves. So it's always a very, very dangerous one to, to go down that road. Leo Varadkar went there and I think that kind of speaks to the problem that the government have here is that I know Mary can list out all the things that have happened, but the problem is it's not enough and it's never going to be enough until we get a, a stable housing market, which we haven't had in decades. If you go back, like go back through mm. probably to the 90s when people thought we were a poor country and things weren't as good as, as they have been since. But the Celtic Tiger was a messed up market. Then we end up with ghost estates. We had 10 years that were written off and now we're 10 well, years old. Well, for good or bad, there were, there were plenty of rentals available um, Kevin, during, during those years. Kevin makes a really, really important point. What's really important is, is that we have a stable uh, housing supply and that's what Housing for All is delivering. It's delivering multi-annual... I want to just talk about just the housing that's being delivered. Say, mm -hmm. for example, cost rental. Oh, yeah. OK. Um, Dara Bryan said that reaching the target of 4,100 cost rental homes, and they are those affordable rents. 25% not the, below Not the sort of built rents and the rents that you're sure. actually currently seeing on the last, likes of daft.ie mm -hmm. that are completely out of reach yeah. for people like Porrick. You're not likely to meet your target on them this year. So the bill to rents that you mentioned there and the DAF.ie report, actually, it references new rental uh, asking prices. And that indicates the bill to rent model as opposed to the affordable cost rental model, yeah. which is the state provided yes. secure. Are you going to reach rental. your targets on that, though, for this year? You're not likely to. I, I would say it is unlikely because the 
model has been introduced for the very first time. But you still had a target. You knew it was being introduced for the first time when you set out this target of 4,100 cost rental homes. Well, we have have an overall target to deliver more than 25,000 homes this year and we're going to exceed that overall. That's a mix mix of sort of private supply as well. Absolutely it is a mix. One size fits all is not going to fix this housing crisis, Claire. What we need is to ensure that there is a massive increase in housing. The budget, the the, right. the budget has gone from 275 million a year yes. to 4 billion okay. a year. That's a seismic change and it's going to be sustained just, but, over and over many but, years. But let's, backed let's, up be, by legislation. let's be clear on this. You're not spending 4 billion euro this year on housing. In fact, there's 500 million, almost 500 million unspent that was meant to be spent in the first nine months this year. How could that be done That's in, the first in housing? Nine months we've how how could that be done in the housing know, crisis? You, how could you be so far behind? There's the government. Because the last there's general, hasn't been spent general, even, you know this. There's general agreement that. We need about 40,000 new built homes each year, at least. And even the Department mm. of Housing uh, says that. The government's nowhere near, near making Sorry, can, I, making, can, we let, can we let just keep making the point, that. Mary? You're not meeting, meeting the social housing targets, the affordable purchase targets, cost rental targets. These are all targets that the government set for itself. Uh, unambitious targets, in my view, but, but the government isn't, isn't also, even meeting those. Also, the issue of short-term lets. Do you believe that the sort of lack of regulation in this area is, is, is making the, the, the rental situation all the worse, Kian. I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem. On the census night, there was 35,000 empty rental homes uh, around the country, and a good proportion of those are short-term lets. And that's an underutilisation of those homes. And the government has been talking now for years about, well, we're going to regulate them, do something about it. Nothing has actually been done. And if they did actually do something about that, we'll get some of those uh, properties that used to be long-term rental homes back in to use as long-term rental homes. And that is an immediate measure mm. would help while, you know, we obviously need a lot more supply to actually be built uh, at the same time. Um, and Kieran, when uh, you say, what, what do teaching unions, they've, they've called on teachers, lecturers and all others to go to this raise the roof rally now to really express um, their frustration at the housing crisis and how it's impacting on the education system. What do teacher unions want to see? I mean, housing supply is what everyone wants to see, but there are, there are specific things that teachers believe could make a difference quickly. Yeah, well, uh, when you find that the education system is, is fundamentally at risk, uh, certainly I leave it to the politicians to argue about uh, the best strategy in terms of, of dealing with the housing. But in the education arena, there's certain things that Minister Foley could do this week uh, first of all, one of the previous speakers said that a lot of teachers have, have left the country to other shores. Uh, let's try and get them back. And how do you go about getting them back? Well, you, you cut through the red tape that's there at the Teaching Council, uh, myriads of it. Secondly, you give them a permanent job when they come back and you give permanent jobs to people who are starting out in their career. That's incentivization. You rebuild the middle management structure in schools, which means that the people who are leaving teaching because they're just fed up of no promotional opportunities, that you rebuild that and restructure it because it was dismantled uh, at the time of the crash and never properly built. There's three things that Minister Foley and her colleagues in government could do in the next week. Okay. All right. There we'll have to leave that. And two very big problems there when we're talking about teaching and staffing, uh, coupled with the housing crisis. Uh, My thanks to Kieran and to Porik. The rest of the panel will be staying on with me after the break to discuss how the windfall tax will be used to protect energy consumers from high prices, apparently. Stay with us. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. Ireland might collect anywhere from 340 million euro to 1.9 billion from a windfall tax and solidarity contribution from energy providers, money which the energy minister Eamon Ryan says will be used to protect consumers. Kevin Doyle, Mary Fitzpatrick and Keno Callahan are still here with me and joining us now is UCD professor in energy economics Lisa Ryan. Um, you're very welcome along Lisa. Tell us about this windfall tax if you wouldn't mind just breaking it down from what we've heard today, um, I suppose how, how it will be collected, on what basis, and who's going to have to hand over their profits? OK, well, the background... Or some of them, some of the some profits. Of the profits. The background here, of course, is that we've had very, very high electricity prices over the last, well, year, really. Mm. Um, and at the end of September, the Council of Ministers got together in Europe and agreed that they should find a way to claw back some of the excess profits that some of the companies have been making. And the way the electricity market works is that the price is set by the highest price in the market, which is due to the gas um, electricity generators. So the gas electricity generators, it costs them a lot to produce electricity. So they are not making quite so much profit. But the rest of the market, for example, the wind generators or solar or hydro generators, who do not have high costs, they have no fuel costs, they are getting the same high price on the market. So what they're doing today now is they're setting a threshold of 120 euros per megawatt hour. So whenever the price on the market goes above that 120 euros per megawatt hour, which is a high threshold, it should be said, usually mm. the market averages at about 50. So we're talking like well above um, average prices. Um, so where is it at now? Like, just to give us an indication, like right now, would there be a windfall tax that would yes, be coming into government? Yes, there would. So the average for, it has fallen in recent times. In fact, the CSO brought out numbers today showing that we're at, actually at the lowest point in um, a year. 
um, with electricity prices. It was at 154 on average through the month of October. Mm-hmm. So we're above that threshold, but it wouldn't be at that threshold every, every minute of every day. It depends. If there's a lot of wind at night time, it'll fall below that. So it'll only be, it's quite a volatile market. So you'll have at peak times, it'll okay. rise above it and then below. So this is only being levied on renewable generators, it should be said. Is it the same across European countries or have other countries imposed higher windfall taxes and a, a greater yield, if you like, for, for well, revenue? In, in September, the ministers agreed that the threshold would be set at about 180 euros per megawatt hour. It seems that we are setting it a little bit lower than that, probably because we have a lot of wind generators that are making this excess profit. The subsidy was set at 70 and they're making well in excess okay. of that. So other countries, it's free, each country is free to interpret it really as, as they will. So countries are doing it a little differently. Not everybody has implemented it yet. A lot of countries have announced it. But I think it remains to be seen really how, the, how different countries are going to implement because everybody has a different kind of fuel mix and different markets in their own country. Um, you know, initially when this was talked about, Kevin, the, uh, uh, it was sort of like this is, yeah, this all sounds great, the windfall tax, but it's actually not going to take in much, much money from revenue. And when you hear there that it could be somewhere between 300 odd million and then 1.9 billion, like that's a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very hard to tell how much actually will be brought in, one. And then secondly, will we feel it? Well, will it make a difference to our bills? Well, the most striking thing is for me today, Claire, from that announcement was exactly that, because when Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath stand up on budget day, there's almost a scientific formula behind everything they announce. So if they're putting 50 cents on a packet of cigarettes, they can tell you exactly how much that is going to bring in next year. Now, sometimes they're off by a little bit, mm. but in or around the same. When they do a, a little tweak to the income tax bans, they know exactly what that's going to cost them. In this case, you're throwing out figures there that are like just absolutely continents apart in terms of the gap. So what you could do with 300 million versus what you could do with 1.9 billion, we don't really know what that is going to be worth to us in terms of a payback. And, and we, we don't know what sort of a payback it is, but I suppose from the government point of view, this is an easy political decision because, as Lisa says, the Council of Europe and ministers have decided this all over Europe, so they have the green light there mm-hmm. uh, in terms of competition. Who you'd be hard-pressed to find a person on the street who would object to the idea of big corporations having to pay a windfall tax. But it may not be the golden goose that some people seem to think it is. Yeah, the other question is, Mary, like where, what will it be used for? What's going to happen, this, this revenue, be it, you know, 340 million right up mm. to 1.9 billion, whatever it is. I know. Um, What's going to be done with it? Be careful not to spend money you haven't yes. earned. You know, Kevin's absolutely right. Very hard. Well, there's to... companies making big profits at the moment. Absolutely, and, and that's and that's and why the a legis- lot of people feeling the pain with all this energy inflation. Absolutely, and that's why the government brought forward the cost of living measures that it did in the budget that has paid already to households a 400 euro credit towards their electricity and will go on and pay further. Um, but in terms of this um, tax. Uh, I guess Lisa really describes it very well. It's it's such a dynamic situation, so um, unpredictable to to a large extent. Primary legislation will be brought forward, which will establish, at least in legislation, primary legislation, the principle of collecting the tax, which is really important. So whatever funds are collected, be it 300 million or 2 billion, that those Mm. funds can be used, ring-fenced and reinvested in protecting and supporting homeowners and our citizens during this energy crisis, during this cost of living crisis, but also, I suppose, investing in renewables, which is the future of all of our energy. So the renewables that are making so much money at the moment are actually going to be giving it back to you and you're going to be reinvesting it 
in them. You're going to well, be giving them their money no, back. No, what, what, what I'm, I said, renewable technologies, renewable right. energies. Um, the, we're already a leader in terms of wind energy. Um, we have ambitions to be an exporter of uh, energy from mm. an energy perspective, from a renewables perspective. Um, so, yes, we will look okay. to invest. But we don't know yet, obviously, how much we're going to have. Keen, uh, Social Democrats would have been hugely in favour of a windfall tax. So you'd welcome today's move, I take it. Yeah, we've been calling for the introduction of windfall tax on excess profits for quite some time. So we do welcome that this is happening now. I think how it's spent is very important. And it is important that households that are most at risk of fuel poverty are prioritised. About 50% of households in Ireland at the moment are at a high risk of fuel poverty. So they should be prioritised in terms of any future uh, measures that are taken by government. We've seen, unfortunately, for example, with the energy credit, that 50 million euro was spent uh, on holiday home. Uh, owners, you know, are not prioritising uh, those who are really at uh, risk in terms of fuel poverty. Like I've met people uh, in my constituency who are living in uh, one uh, one room now because they can't afford uh, heating and energy bills, and they can only try and uh, heat their you know living room. They're sleeping there as well. Uh, I also have uh, you know met people in terms of district heating systems who are getting paid, mm -hmm. uh, who are paying very excessive uh, energy bills now, uh, saying you know. Uh, figures of about 12 euro just to take, take a shower, for example, uh, because yeah. they're paying commercial gas rates. And that hasn't been addressed by the government either. So I'd like to see uh, some action on that. Uh, the cap on this market revenue will operate from December um, of this year, so a couple of weeks' time, to June of next year. Mm -hmm. um, th there isn't any indication at the moment whether this would or should be made more permanent, Lisa. Yeah, I mean, the Council of Ministers decided that time frame really um, as a starting point, I think I could see it. I could well imagine that it might be extended. Right now, the gas prices have fallen a little bit, actually. So that's why our, our electricity prices have dropped a little bit. But the forecasts are that for next winter 2023, unfortunately, we are likely to have very high gas prices again. And that's because right now we've, you know, Europe has been um, filling up all the gas storage. They're more or less full right now, which, and we've had a mild winter, so gas has come down a little bit. But it's going to be quite difficult to fill up those gas stores over next spring when we still have high gas. We have no Russian gas. And so coming into next winter, it's going to be quite difficult. So you could imagine God. that gas prices will be no high. Light. Electricity will no be light high. No light at the end of the tunnel. Because uh, I want to ask you about that wholesale prices, according to the CSO, have gone down by 52%. People would say, do you know, that doesn't fit with my bill. That doesn't fit with what I'm paying right now. Like, why, how is that the case when uh, the reality is that our bills are very high at the moment, Lisa, that we saw this drop, I think, in October? Well, there's always a lag between what's happening on the wholesale market and when, what we see in our actual bills. The retail market is about, you know, about two or three months behind what's happening in the wholesale spot market on, a, on an hourly basis. Mm -hmm. So last year, for example, when the prices started to rise, we didn't see a, a rise in our gas and electricity bills really until the spring that they started rising, although gas and electricity were very high already. I should, it should be said that this, this last, this October just gone, we've had the highest share of wind we have ever had in the system. 47% of all of our electricity was generated by wind, plus gas prices came down a little bit, and that explains why our wholesale prices uh, are, were a bit lower. But it should be said that last year they were also high. So, you know, mm. we're comparing still high with high. They're, overall, they're still high. We're still at 154 compared with, you know, two years ago when it was 50. 
So they still haven't dropped enormously. But that, if it were to continue, you would see in about two months' time that our electricity bills should be dropping. But it takes a while for it to trickle through because you have to renegotiate contracts each time and it takes a while for it to come through the retail market. Yeah, it does make you think, doesn't it, Kevin, that even if we'd see that drop back, what Lisa's saying again is next winter it's not going to get any easier because uh, all of this, of course, dictated by, by the markets as well. And, you know, the wholesale price, supply, demand with everything in flux at the moment. It's, it's hard to know how it will play out for people and when it comes to paying their bills. No, it's a huge political challenge because it feeds into the wider economic problem with the cost of living crisis, which is affecting everything from bread to new cars um, to oil, obviously, as well, which, which feeds in kind of in the same stream as gas. So it's a huge political challenge. And you ask, what are the government going to do with whatever money they get from this? That I think there is absolutely no doubt that they will have to use it to go back to the consumers. So it, it, I don't see how they could reinvest it in infrastructure. And I don't think they have plans to do it that way. I think if they get 300 million euro from this, it'll be going back out, perhaps an extra fuel allowance. If they get 1.9 billion, well, then I think we can be pretty sure that coming into next autumn winter, we'll be getting new energy credits, maybe not the ones Keen might like, the universal ones, but mm. I suspect that the government here are really trying to keep a lid on this, but it's in such a big problem. Interesting too that there was a reluctance in government about introducing a windfall mm. tax. It was really at EU level that it was all propelled along and because the fear was that it would, you know, put off renewables from, well, you know, the argument, and that's why the market. It's actually interesting that they went for the lower level, lower cap today because actually so we're actually going to have one of the it'll kick in a lot faster than in some other european countries in terms of the windfall tax we're going to have here and so there is an argument there about how will investors in renewables uh, look at ireland now if they think well that's the, their attitude to making profits there so there is it is interesting there in terms of how that will play out if it's only for six months but again i'd be surprised now having gone down this road Everything is impossible until you do it once. The government mm. used to say that a windfall tax was impossible. Now they've done it. Yeah, it's interesting as well that uh, the, whether the mechanisms being in place is very important on this one, Keen, to ensure that the profit-making companies won't be able to hide those profits. Yeah, no, there needs to be transparency around that. And that's, I think, one of the issues actually of the government not being able to estimate what they're going to be able to take in from this because there isn't enough transparency around the profits of some of the energy companies. So that is important in terms of making sure... Would you expect more detail? On, on all of this, when you're getting that price range, that revenue range of somewhere between 300 million and 1.9 billion. But can I just say, I mean, that's due that to the market volatility. Yeah, so, is, so for example, it's difficult to predict, you know, if, if the average price is 150 like it is now, that there's just 30 above the cap. But mm -hmm. in August, it was at over 300. Okay. So, that, you know, so it's just really that difference. It's All very, right. very difficult to predict. OK. All right. Mm. There, we'll have to leave that. Uh, my thanks to Lisa Ryan for coming in and explaining all of that, because it's quite complex, the whole issue around the windfall tax. Um, but to take us through that and to Keno Callaghan, uh, Dr. Scott Walken will be here after the break to tell us about the RSB virus this winter season. So do stay with us. The number of respiratory or RSV cases in Ireland has reached a new and unprecedented record high. 
with 731 new cases reported to the Health Protection Surveillance Centre in the seven days up until the end of last week. Kevin Doyle and Mary Fitzpatrick are still here with me and joining us now on Skype is clinical lead with infection control at the Irish College of GPs, Dr Scott Walken. Uh, Dr Walken, thanks for being with us tonight. Um, it's a common winter infection, but could you explain RSV? Is it more than a chest infection? Well, it's, 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 RSV is a really common infection and it peaks every winter. And it is very likely that everybody watching tonight at some stage would have had RSV. And for most people, it's not a severe illness. It's unpleasant and it's frustrating, but it's, it's essentially a, a head cold for the vast majority of people that get it. Uh, certainly people that are at the extremes of age, you know, the very young, for example, and to a lesser extent, the elderly, and also people that have significant underlying medical problems, uh, they will t they're at risk of having more uh, severe symptoms. Uh, so so for, it can go down to the chest, particularly in infants. It's more likely to go down to the chest in, in, in infants. And sometimes uh, younger children and infants need to be admitted because of RSV symptoms. But thankfully, that is the exception. Most people simply need to treat it like a head cold. And there are great resources available to find out, you know, how to best treat a lot of the symptoms. So the HSE have a high quality evidence-based uh, website, which is called undertheweather.ie. And that's a very useful source of information. And that will suffice for the vast majority of people that have, that have RSV. RSV peaked every winter before the pandemic, and it will continue to peak after the pandemic. I think one of the difficulties with it is that until recently, a lot of people wouldn't have heard of it. So the, the name is a little bit intimidating and the, the name can, can make it sound a little bit scary. Uh, but for the most part, thankfully, it's a bit unpleasant, but it's right. it's not a severe illness. I am, I am wondering, though, about the sort of a record high number of cases, as I say, 731 cases reported in the past week and 290 people, as you say, younger kids, maybe older people have been hospitalised as a result. Do you know why we're seeing such a high incidence of it this year in particular? So I don't think anybody knows for certain uh, why that has happened. I've spoken to a number of people about this. Uh, and most people suspect that the reason is because during the, th the kind of things that prevent COVID from spreading, the kind of public health restrictions that stop COVID from spreading, will also prevent other respiratory uh, viruses from spreading, including RSV. So, the, and, and of course, RSV uh, tends to be more troublesome in the very young. So there are people that have been born during and soon before and during uh, lockdown periods. And now, and indeed last year, there were, there were high levels of RSV last year. So as, as people started to interact more and as we approach the clinical winter, uh, there is a there's it's almost like there's a, a pent up demand. You know, there's more people susceptible to RSV. And of course, as we interact more and as winter approaches, winter makes us stay inside a bit more and interact more closely with people. Uh, so it's, it just gets passed around more easily because there are larger numbers of people susceptible. And is there's, there there's a
Sorry, just advice on that, on how, I guess, you know, people are meeting up more, as you say, we're not in lockdown anymore. Um, but, you know, what would be your advice on how people can protect each other, especially as we're coming up to the festive season? Because one of the big dangers, isn't it, that is that children can pass it on to grandparents and other vulnerable group. Yeah. So the type of public health advice that we have become familiar with uh, for, for reducing the risk of transmission of COVID-19 will also help to reduce the risk of transmission of RSV. So trying to ventilate rooms, for example, uh, trying to uh, ensure that if we, if we do have a cough, that we cough into our elbows, you know, cough etiquette. Uh, hand washing has a part to play as well. And I think one of the more important things then, if, if somebody is sick, whether it's RSV or whether it's uh, another respiratory illness, uh, the public health advice for a long time now has been, if we're at sick, if we're sick, we should stay at home. We shouldn't go to school or to creches or to work. We should try to minimise our interaction with other people because we want to try and protect those other people. For some people, it's an unpleasant, you know, head cold. But for 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 people that are more vulnerable, uh, they are at risk of more serious illness. So I think it, it, we all really have a part to play in trying to minimise the risk of passing these illnesses on. The the other thing that's really quite important, which will help reduce transmission of, uh, of uh, respiratory illness, uh, it would include ensuring that our COVID vaccines are up to date. And for people that are eligible for influenza vaccine, uh, that, that they get the, the, flu, the flu vaccine. Uh, that includes everybody over 65, people with medical under, underlying medical conditions, uh, people with uh, kids on age 2 to 17. Okay, thank, uh, you. thank you for that. Uh, good advice. Thanks for that, um, Dr. Scott Walken, for joining us. Um, plenty of advice there on how to protect ourselves this winter. Appreciate it. Um, to come to you, Mary Fitzpatrick, just when we look at those, those figures and we are seeing record high numbers of RSV virus, we're all back um, mixing again, thankfully. Um, but, but with that brings, um, brings its own problems. But uh, are you worried about pressure on the hospital system? Like we had 625 people on trolleys as of today. Are you worried about sort of winter viruses and all of that putting pressure on a system? Yeah, absolutely. And it's this time of year where the worries increase very significantly. And I suppose Dr. Scott there made the point, you know, the responsibility is on all of us to do our bit to support the health service, um, to support the hospitals, the GPs, the primary care centres, to wash our hands, keep our distance, wear a mask on public transportation, the cough etiquette, you know, the stuff that you say we didn't hear, before, you know, two years ago, we, were, we didn't think of. And then it became normal. Yeah. And, and some of us, you know, we've, we've left our guard down. It is great to be back socialising, but we do all have to play our part. And we can play our part by just being a bit more responsible and a bit more mindful, I suppose, of our behaviour. All right. OK, um, I just want to have a brief look ahead to tomorrow when we're going to have the final report from Dr. Gabriel Scali, Kevin. And um, what can you tell us about this? This is the cervical check report. Of course, that was sparked in the wake of, of Vicky Phelan and, and other women's cases um, that came to such public attention that this this report was was ordered. Yeah, particularly poignant that it is happening so quickly after Vicky Phelan's death um, that Gabriel Scali, after the 2018 scandal, he was brought in by the government to basically be the guy to go in, examine what had gone wrong here and try and come up with the solution. He had 170 recommendations. His previous progress report said mm -hmm. that 164 of those had been actioned, but there were still a few outstanding ones. So tomorrow we're going to get his view on how 
cervical check have gone, the health system has gone on with them. But I think what you can expect, Claire, is probably him to focus on three things. One is that question around open disclosure, which mm-hmm. still hasn't been sorted out by the government. And it was a big one on Vicky Phelan's list. We heard a lot of that being talked about last week after her death. Um, the other one is access to patient records and how easy the system has been made for patients. And finally, restoring trust in the system, because even the women caught up in the cervical check scandal have all said it's still so important for people to go and take part in the screening, but the trust was broken by what happened. And I think a big part of what Gabriel Scali will probably talk about tomorrow is whether that has been restored. All right. Um, Thank you for that, Kevin. And to Mary, we will have more on that report tomorrow. Uh, But that is it from us for tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok at Tonight VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.